One of the most significant things that's taking place right now in the life of this church is last week we announced that we will uh, are beginning a process to add additional shepherds to uh, to uh, the, the leadership of this community. And uh, if you weren't here last week, we passed out a uh, process booklet that describes, lays out the, the plan for this. And if you weren't, didn't get that, then they are on the, this table uh, right behind you uh, here in the center in some baskets, and you can pick those up this, uh, this morning during our Bible class hour. All of the adult classes will meet here in the, uh, the, the worship center, and we will go through that, that process to answer any uh, questions or concerns that you may have. Make sure that, that we uh, completely understand the process as it's laid out. And this morning, we are going to be kind of completing uh, the, the first step in that process. As we are going to be selecting a, uh, an administrative team. This team is going to uh, be comprised of about five to seven people. Uh, both uh, men and women are eligible for this. The nomination is taking place this morning during worship, and so this is the only time that, that you have to do that. And we've asked that you been, have been thinking about that, been praying about names that, that you would like to consider for that. Inside your bulletin is a nomination form. At the conclusion of service, uh, the, the men that ha, are, are serving on the, the communion table, they're going to pass the baskets during the, the final song. And so... Uh, if you have those names already ready, you can uh, write that down now or continue to be thinking and praying as we uh, go through the service this morning. Well, I think everybody's worst fear that does anything up on stage is to uh, realize that the words that everybody else is seeing is not what you are, are doing. And uh, <laughs> that is... Uh, it's just miserable experience whenever you you're trying to lead and and people are going somewhere else and uh, I think that that does kind of fit nicely with with the topic that we're addressing uh, over the, these three weeks because we're talking about about shepherds we're talking about the leaders of our church and to begin this this morning I want to bring up a, an age old argument is th- this tomato. Is it a fruit or a vegetable? Okay, got, got a couple of, uh, couple of people that are shouting out their answers. Let, let, let's raise your hand if you say that, that, that the tomato is a vegetable. All right, I'm not going to count, but we got uh, quite a few there that, 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 that identify the tomato as a vegetable. How about as a fruit? Okay, a lot more that seem to, or at least some of you are voting twice. How many of you are not going to raise your hand no matter what, what I say? <laughs> oh, I had one actually raise their hand. So, um, now, botanically speaking, the tomato is a fruit. Legally speaking, the tomato is a vegetable. And I say legally, not just culturally, because this argument has been waged at the highest court within our government. The Supreme Court weighed in on this debate in the early 19th century. 
And they ruled that while culturally most people identify and speak about tomatoes as vegetables, or excuse me, uh, yeah, as vegetables, but legally it's going to be a, a fruit. Now, uh, excuse me, I got that backwards. While everyone recognizes that it was a, a fruit, that uh, legally it was going to be a, a vegetable. Now, the Supreme Court didn't necessarily settle the matter because several states have, uh, have identified the tomato, Tennessee and Ohio, for example, they, they've identified the tomato as their state fruit. Vermont has identified it as their state vegetable. So it still continues to be waged. And I know that, that some of you at this point, you're starting to think, now what difference does it really make? Because regardless of whether or not you call this a fruit or a vegetable, you know, if, if we start to, to, to call it a fruit, nobody's going to start adding it to their fruit salad. Or nobody's going to start uh, identifying ketchup as a smoothie. That's not the way that, that we function. But the reality is that the categories matter. The whole reason that the Supreme Court was brought in to, to wage a ruling on this debate is because in the early 19th century, uh, vegetables were levied with a 10% tariff whenever they were imported. But fruits were not. And so one of the major industries that, that was bringing the tomato into the United States, they argued that, that, that it, it can't be. And so the Supreme Court weighed in because it matters. The categories matter. And it's not just the categories, but it's also the process that you go about labeling or, or de deciding those categories that matter. Whenever we talk about adding additional elders, if we are not careful, we take this process and we engage in it in such a way that it just, it just destroys and crushes. And I've been in places where, where this is, has taken place and, and there are, are godly men that, that get destroyed through the process of trying to add additional elders. There are two devastating consequences of the way that we engage in this that, that is unhealthy. The, the first is, you see in the, the life of Saul, the, not the, the apostle, but the, the king of Israel. If you'll remember, way, way back uh, as, as the Israel is becoming a nation, they ask for a king like all the surrounding nations. And God relents. God says, okay, I'm going to give you a king, but it's going to be the man that I choose. And so they gather everybody around. And they begin this process of trying to identify who it is that God has chosen for them. They, had, they realized that it was Saul that has been chosen by God to be the first king of the nation. 
But as the whole nation is gathered there, as all the men are gathered around, they start calling Saul's name and he doesn't come out. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse uh, 22 tells us that, that they ask God, you know, wh- where is he? And the Lord says, he is hiding among the baggage. See, the way that we have improperly approached Scripture has led us to view it as a, a, a pattern or as, a, as a, 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 an example. Everything is an example for us. And we have to, to, to try and get back to the way that everything was in the beginning. And we'll talk more about the way that we read Scripture in just a moment. But here you have a man that has been appointed by God But because of his own insecurities, because he sees himself as crushed, he's hiding out among his own baggage. And I've seen that time and time again. Godly men, men of of prayer, men that that are great servants within the church, men that, that actually have a a following. They have people that look up to them and and respect them that they are caring for within the church. And they refuse to accept the, the role of being a shepherd because they don't want to go through that process. And they end up living timidly. Even if they, they do go through the process and they, they have everything exposed, they, they begin to shepherd very timidly. They need everyone to to try and, and put them back together. And so they, they function as people pleasers. Just, just tell me that I'm a whole person. Tell me that I'm put together. Tell me that I'm valuable. And so if I, if I please you, then, then you do that for me. The other consequence of, of, our, of this kind of approach is that we end up with tyrants. We run the risk of ending up with with tyrants. And you see this also in the life of Saul. And and, uh, whenever David is anointed as the next king, David is is a servant within the, 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 the king's court. And Saul begins to get very insecure. And out of that insecurity, he, he, he's not him best, his best self. He, he uh, acts very irrationally. He acts uh, very uh, angrily. He goes out and he attempts to kill David numerous times. Jonathan, Saul's own son, who is a friend of David, begins to question Saul and say, why are you doing this? And 1 Samuel 20 is an example of a conversation that takes place between Jonathan and, David, or Jonathan and, and Saul. If you would put those words up on the screen. Then Saul became very angry with Jonathan and he said, you son of a wicked and worthless woman. He turns his attack against his own son. He says, I I know you are on the side of David, son of Jesse. You bring shame on yourself and on your mother who gave birth to you. This is the ancient equivalent of saying that you are just like your mother. 
That's what Saul is saying. And he says, as long as Jesse's son lives, you will never be a king or have a kingdom. Now send for me David, bring him to me. He must die. If we are being generous to Saul here, these actions are motivated out of his insecurity. But it comes across as this tyrannical reign as he is trying to squash any kind of threat against his existence. There are certain phrases that whenever they are uttered because of, of battles and arguments in my past, that whenever they are uttered, I feel like I'm being crushed all over again. That, that you see the flaws inside of me, and, and I'm not at my best. That is the case for every single one of us. And I know that, that some of you, you have seen leaders of churches function tyrannically. And it may even lead us to, to say you know, that this abuse, it, 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 it means that, that we need to try and find some other way. We just don't need shepherds anymore. But as I argued last week, we are, are a people. We are a sheep in need of a shepherd. That's a consistent message through Scripture. But we don't just need a shepherd. We need good shepherds. And I hope that we are engaging in a process that is not like the one that I have described that crushes people. And at this point in the, the church of my youth and probably your youth as well, whenever we go to talking about how we're going to categorize whether or not a man is an elder or not, we would turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 2. And I would read those passages and then we would come up with a, a checklist that would function as this, this rigid boundary. If a man meets all of these qualifications, as we would even term them, then he can be an elder. But if he lacks just one of them, then he's not. And so we wrestle and we debate over this list of qualifications and, and how you are going to interpret all of these qualifications. But there is a problem with the way that we have approached those passages. Because what we traditionally have done is we've taken 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and we have mashed those lists together to come up with one comprehensive checklist. And the problem is that as you read those lists closely, you'll see that there's a problem of consistency. Those two lists are not exactly the same. They're similar, yes, but they're not the same. And that is not just something that is insignificant. It's something that matters because remember, in that day, they did not have a copy of the letter to Timothy and a copy of the letter to Titus. And so if, if Paul is, is writing and, and wants this, this perfect checklist, then you would think that he would be consistent. 
couple of examples of the, the differences. In Timothy, Paul writes and says that, that a man must be able to teach in order to uh, become an elder. But to Titus, he says that, that the, the man must hold firm to the, the, the true gospel and must be someone that is, uh, is able to encourage others and refute those who disagree with the gospel. Those, that, that's a similar, but, but it's slightly different. Even in uh, maybe the way that we envision those two, the, the context, we envision those two things taking place. But more significantly, to Titus, or excuse me, to Timothy, Paul says that there should, uh, the, the man should not be a recent convert. But he leaves that off in writing to Titus. That seems like something that, that would be rather significant, isn't it? But you see, the, the problem with trying to combine all of it is that there was no consistent context that Paul is writing to. Ephesus, Paul had visited very early in his missionary journeys. You see him uh, starting to encounter them uh, like in Acts chapter 14, 15, uh, and 16, and yet he doesn't visit Crete until uh, he is on his way to Rome in Acts chapter 27. And it's believed that, that he really doesn't spend significant time there until after the end of the book of Acts. Crete was a, a, a place that, that was, um, they, they had a reputation for being uh, rather wicked. In fact, in writing to Titus, uh, Paul quotes one of their own poets, one of their own philosophers, in describing the reputation that Cretans have as being liars, as people of, of ill repute. So the gospel is fairly new there, but whenever you, you look at at the, the church at Ephesus that Paul is writing to, there's already elders whenever Paul first encounters the, the church at Ephesus. It's the elders from Ephesus that, that, that come and meet with Paul and encourage him not to go to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20, but he continues on that, that journey because that, that is what God's will for him was. So whenever he's writing to Timothy, he is writing to a church that is adding additional elders, not one that is adding elders for the first time. It would have been impossible to find somebody that was not a recent convert in Crete. So Paul didn't include that. The, the contexts are different. And if Paul intended this to be a comprehensive list, there are some significant things that, that, that Paul has left out. There's very little mention in these two lists of, of the man's faith, of the hope that they have, of their understanding of the resurrection, of their prayer life. There's so much that, that Paul leaves out. Whenever we return to these Scriptures and we view them as this, this rigid blueprint that we must follow, we run the risk of of doing what Jesus condemned the Pharisees and teachers of the law of doing. Of straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. 
That we are so focused on the little details that we miss the overall message that Paul is trying to communicate or that Jesus has in mind. So rather than debate the boundaries, I want to turn our attention to the center. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. See, I don't believe that Paul intended 1 Timothy 3 and Titus to function as a checklist. But rather, these items that Paul writes about, they are intended as a primer that is to probe deeper questions that point us to Jesus. And I would even argue that missing one item on the checklist does not necessarily disqualify someone from being an elder. And I know that I'm moving out on some very shaky ground here. But let's just think about a couple of areas that have tended to be sticking points whenever it comes to the qualifications of elders. And that that is the husband of one wife and managing one's household well. The way that we have tended to approach those two passages, it, it removes all uh, human free will out of that. You know, one of the, the primary ways that God reveals Himself in, in the Old Testament, well, and, and even through Jesus, is as Father to the nation of Israel. And yet Israel... They rebelled against God time after time after time. So whose fault is that? Is that that God's fault as Father that He's not managing His household well? That that He has not had every single person become a believer? Or is it that, that human will is at play? Again, I think that the way that we approach Scripture at times, it puts undue pressure and it forces many of us to live with with unreasonable amounts of guilt. We place all of the blame for our children not attending church or or having the, the exact same faith that we do on us. And yes, parents have a responsibility. Scripture clearly teaches that. But the children have human free will. The, the, the spouse of a husband, the husband can, can live a, a perfectly godly life and it does not remove the, the free will of the wife to, to be rebellious, to turn against the way of God. If we're not careful, the way that we have defined these qualifications, they would not allow room for Jesus or Paul to have any leadership capacity within our churches. But Jesus is the model and the definition of what a shepherd is. And in John chapter 10, Jesus uses this very image 
to describe himself. Verse 1, he says, Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. And then skipping down to verse, uh, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay, my, lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to, to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. The shepherd figure that Jesus uses is one that he says is defined by love. Do you hear all of the images of love throughout those verses that we read? That Jesus says that I call my sheep and they listen to me because they know my voice. The shepherd lived out among the people, or out among the sheep. They didn't live in their own houses separate from, but they were there from the very beginning of life to the end. They were the first face that a lamb saw whenever it was born. It was the last face that a lamb saw before it died. You remember the children's poem, Mary Had a Little Lamb? Its fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, its lamb was sure to go. That's the kind of relationship that Jesus says that shepherds have. That everywhere they go, that lamb is there. That's how ancient shepherds lived, is that they were there day in and day out. Which leads to the second characteristic uh, uh, of a shepherd, and that is that they, it's one of commitment. Jesus compares the good shepherd with a hired hand. A hired hand views it just simply as a job. But the shepherd, this is who they are. And closely connected to that is a shepherd figure is one of sacrifice. Jesus says that the shepherd lays down his life does something that just doesn't make any sense. There were a group of farm animals that decided they wanted to celebrate the farmer for all that the farmer had been providing for them, caring for them. So they got together and said, you know, let's provide a breakfast for the farmer. 
Chicken said, I'll, I'll provide the eggs. Cow says, I'll, I'll provide some milk. And they, they together looked at the pig and said, you provide the bacon. The pig says, wait a minute. What, what you guys are doing, it demands just a small, uh, small commitment. But for me, it demands total sacrifice. Jesus is the one that has offered total sacrifice. Whenever Paul encouraged people to follow him, it was not because of who he was or, or how good he was. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, he says, To follow me as I follow Christ. Our task is not to create this checklist and, and move people up if they match everything in that or to bump them off if they don't. But to ask deeper questions. Not just, are, are all their kids in a church building on a Sunday or in a church of Christ on a Sunday? But what kind of father was he? Not just that he's still married, but, but rather what kind of husband he is. If we're not careful, we're guilty uh, within the church of celebrating years more than we are the, the quality of those years. Just because somebody's been married a long time does not mean that they have been a loving and sacrificial husband. That they have lived like Christ in their life. So instead of focusing on the boundaries, let me encourage you to return to the center, which is Christ. That He is the Good Shepherd. And we are looking for good shepherds that love Jesus Christ. PJ has picked out a song of invitation. And if you are here this morning and you are not in a relationship with that good shepherd. And we want to invite you to come into that relationship under the care of this, this loving and committed and sacrificial shepherd. If you'd like to, to begin to, to talk about what it means to follow Jesus or maybe just to become a part of this church. Some of our shepherds will be at the back of the worship center. I'll be at the front. We invite you to come as we stand and sing together.